The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. To the Brandon Peter Show as we continue our track through. A weekend by weekend look at movies released during the summer of 1982. And as always, with me for this journey from Forbes, Scott, not Ben Mendelssohn. Wait, wait a minute. I'm going to be on every single one of these? Oh, yeah. All of them. Oh. Yep. It's in the contract. I'm getting paid. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good news, bad news. Yep. 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 Hi, how you doing? Paid and IOUs. Yes. All right. <laughs> doing good. Doing good. Doing good. Uh, so uh, we're here. We've done one week, and I arguably this was better of a week. There's at least something that feels summery here to start our our, our week, our second weekend of May, as we are looking at a time in the life of a pop culture nerd. Going through 1982 as we did not because we were too little. I was two years old. I was zero. I was months. <laughs> I was, what, five months old. Go- going on five months old. So this week we're going to take a look at four films, uh, two schlocky horror films, a star-driven satire, and a big tentpole movie. Uh, maybe was a surprise big hit. We'll talk about that uh, later on. Uh, the news, what was going on in the world this week, Scott, let's let's take a look here. It's the news of the moment. Ladies and gentlemen, I will read the first runner-up and then Miss USA. The first runner-up is Miss Texas. Miss Arkansas is Miss USA. During this week, where these movies open, FC Barcelona of Spain wins the 22nd European Winners' Cup over uh, Standard Liege of uh, Liege of Belgium, two to one. I won a hundred bucks on that bet. You did, you did. That's why he's here today. John Updike wins the Pulitzer Prize for Rabbit Is Rich. The Chicago Cubs win their 8,000th game. That game was won against the Houston Astros. That is for a uh, regular of the show, Prez Maxson. He's a big Cubs fan. And uh, Terry Utley of Arkansas was crowned Miss USA. We'll touch on that a little later on the show, actually. Uh, Barnum closed in New York City after 854 performances. Salvador Jorge Blanco won the presidential election in the Dominican Republic. And to follow up from something last week, because Scott was... Loving the hockey news. The New York Islanders won the Stanley Cup, sweeping Vancouver Canucks in four games. Their third Stanley Cup in a row. I believe that's called a three-peat. <laughs> that's what happened to the world uh, this week for the show. This is uh, the weekend. Of, this is, what, the 14th, 15th, and 16th of May. 
They were strangers from the West, learning to live in harmony with their new home. Everything seemed perfect. Until they learned the truth about the house where evil dwells. the stories were only legends, tales told from generation to generation. It happened 100 years ago, and now it's about to happen again. The house where evil dwells. Uh, the first movie I'm going to bring up to talk about for this one is an odd little horror film called The House Where Evil Dwells. It's directed by Kevin Connor, he of Motel Hell fame, but uh, he's directed uh, episodes of Space 1999, which is covered on this show, has been covered. It'll be over by the time this is airing. Uh, at Earth's core, from beyond the grave, loads of TV, and it stars Susan George, Edward Albert, Doug McClure, and Amy Barrett. It's about a young American family who moves to a house in Kyoto, Japan. It turns out to be haunted by the ghosts of a woman and her lover who were killed by the woman's husband, as well as the ghost of the husband who killed himself afterwards. Uh, what a movie this was. I had never heard of this one before. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps understandably. And again, you know, to go back to something I said last week that I'll probably be saying a lot over the next several weeks, it looks so colorful compared to what I, we're used to now. Yeah. You know, this is a, you know, a relatively low budget or at least low expectation picture. Mm-hmm. But it still looks very vivid and, and ugly and just very colorful in, in a way that just plays very well on an old te- in an old and new television. Right. The film opens with a relatively ambitious period piece prologue involving a murder suicide and then for the most of the story it's a pretty conventional haunted house picture. You have a you know a nuclear family that moves into a house is unaware of the diabolical history and then strange things start going bump in the night. Mhm. There is an indirect infidelity subplot involving the wife having an affair with a friend of the husband, which again sort of mirrors the you know deep dark origin story of the house itself, and it kind of picks up speed in a way in the last twenty minutes or so. Yeah, you know, relatively speaking, there's some solid and creepy creature effects mm-hmm. where the ghosts sort of take the form of a spider beetle. Yeah, something of that nature. Something like, yeah. Which you know, it's old school creature effects, but uh, I pissed my pants in terror if I woke up to that. So that that, and then it ends rather shockingly with the ghosts winning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as as we learned throughout the picture, the ghosts were trying to possess the the couple, and it turns out to be the the friend to sort of reenact the the manners in which they were de- they died, so that their souls can go off to hell, I guess. I mean, the, that, the ether, they really the nether room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Like, oh shit, we didn't think about this. We're not actually going to heaven. I want to keep haunting. And, and the three main characters die violently. Yeah. Uh, the husband kills his friend and kills his wife and then kills himself. And then roll credits. 
Yeah. Uh, did you think uh, the, the affair, was that like actually happening or was it happening because the ghosts were making it happen? I think it's implied that it was it was happening because of the ghosts. Yeah. I mean, they're two good looking people. Maybe they had thought about it regardless, but it, it's Susan it, George. She gets ma- naked in movies. Yeah. Like every. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I don't have a ton to say about this one other than I was surprised the extent which it wrote checks that was actually able to cash. If that right. Makes sense. Yeah. No, it's a it's a movie. It's it's not great, but it's got things in it that are worth seeing are memorable. Uh, that doesn't make you feel like you wasted a whole lot of time watching the movie. There's some erotic things in it that are there to be there, but there, there's some good gore. There's some decapitation, some limbs getting trimmed off, some blood splatters, and the fact that the film actually goes there with its finale that you think maybe they're going to change it around somehow. They don't. The ghosts are a little goofy when they're all hanging out in like alleys and stuff. That doesn't quite work for me, but it, yeah, the opening, you kind of make sure you get the right movie because it's very period centric it actually legit kind of works in a exploitation like samurai exploitation kind of way and uh the movie's got ho-hum dramas till like the the main crux of the possessions and things start taking off and the husband's starting to get really kind of disturbing things happening to him and and then yeah like you said in the last 20 minutes it really kicks off and becomes worthwhile and you know oh, yes. that that middle forty five minutes between the prologue and the and the the final reel or so, mm-hmm. it's tough just because like a lot of haunted house movies like that, the hauntings can't be that extreme. Otherwise, the people are going to go, yeah, we're getting out of here. Yeah, right. And, and know, we got to introduce why they're here. Yeah. Their first look through the house, something little happening oh, no. outside the house. The conversations are like things aren't going so well. Yeah, but. You know, if you can make it through the middle forty-five minutes, it again it ends well. It, it mm-hmm. you were right about the prologue. My yeah. first thought was, you know, did they blow the entire budget on this scene? Mm-hmm. It does look relatively, you know, big scaled and relatively impressive in that sense. But you know, partially because it takes place mostly in a single location, it do, is able to maintain that level of production value throughout its entire eighty-eight minute running time. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's definitely you unique in a way, and you almost yeah, it's it's a horror movie for sure. But like, who who came up with this? Like, what was the cell? But I mean, this is probably I mean, this is definitely the counter programming for Conan. Probably get a <laughs> cheap little horror movie out this week. But I don't know if I'm highly recommending it. But it it was certainly more entertaining than some of them last week that we had. So it's it's a step up. Hello, I'm Chuck Eisen, producer of the motion picture Death Screams. Ever since this film has been finished, people have been dying all over the country. I'm sorry. What happens in Death Screams could be happening in your hometown tonight. Dear God, I hope not. Rated R. Now playing in a theater near you. I think this was a more limited movie. Uh, it's directed by David Nelson, who's, I guess, more known for an, as an actor, uh, though he did direct eight episodes of Ozzy and Harriet and an Adam-12 episode, along with this film and his career. And it stars Jennifer Chase, Susan Kiger, and Andrea Savio. And it's in a small town, North Carolina. A group of friends are stalked by a mysterious machete-wielding maniac. Which sounds great, yeah, but this is not a good picture. Yep. Um, it is 
very low budget, understandably, mm-hmm. but it's frankly very boring. Yeah. There's it's- not a ton of violence. It does play a little bit in the realm of the first Friday the 13th in that it saves most of its gore and incident to the last 10, 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's another situation where the final people, final girl or whatever, discovers a bunch of bodies right at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But prior to that, not much happens. Well, and when stuff does happen, there's not really good gore. There's not no. really good effects. It's it's off camera. There's a lot of darkness. And it just it seems like, well, there's a guy killing. Well, you still have to write a movie around the guy killing. And it's I'm an easy sell on slashers, and this was one I hadn't seen before. And I was just like checked out. Like there's just people hanging out at a fair for a long time. There's this sheriff that's pissed off about stuff. And these aren't even well-written. It feels like, well, guys just talk like kids and we'll film it. And it pads out till we get to the chase and kill at the end. Like there's not even a random kill in the middle kind of thing. That's got a good set piece. And I, I just, I still don't understand the trajectory of this film. The killer popped out who cares. Um, and yeah, this was just, this was dull, like really dull. Like I've seen cheaper slashers than this that were more entertaining. I really don't have anything to say about it. Yeah. There's not much to say. There's no there there. No, no. Like there will be no deep dive of this movie later on the Brandon Peters show for sure. It's just, I don't know. (laughs) Arrow video put out a boffo like special edition of this. I have, I don't have it. I'm probably never going to have it, but this was a, this was, that was a choice to pick, but I must have it must have fans but then again there's completionists that's like i must own every 80s slasher movie there is but yeah this was just dull like i don't like i really don't have much more to say than we have on it yeah i had my wife watch this one with me and she was mad i figured it was it was an 80s slasher film you know we honestly we, we spent the first you know the summer 2020 when we were all stuck in the house we kind of caught up on a lot of the 80s and late 70s, early 80s slasher films mm-hmm. that we had sort of missed, the less franchisey ones. So I figured this would be just checking another one off the box, which it is. Yeah. But they can't all be pieces. Sorry, Wendy. Yeah, she'll forgive you. Pieces is great. Bastard! Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a recommendation here. But yeah, Death Screams just... Move along, move along. Escape to the adventure of Marco Polo. He battled across fiery deserts and scaled icy mountain peaks. He was taken prisoner by fierce Muslim warriors. By our law and the rules of war, you deserve to die. He challenged Mongol tribesmen, fought with the conquering armies of the great Kublai Khan, and incurred the wrath of the mighty emperor himself. Your heads will roll in the dust. After Shogun, there could only be Marco Polo, Sunday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. We'll move along to see what was going on on television this week at the Nielsen Ratings. We mentioned earlier the Miss USA was crowned. That was the number one show aired on CBS, the Miss USA beauty pageant. Coming in number two, Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Uh, Marco Polo Part 1 on NBC was number three. Uh, Three's Company staying in the top ten at number four um, on ABC. Last people... People got in tune because last week, number 10 was Inside the Third Reich Part 1. People were talking about it because it bumped up to uh, number 5 this week, Part 2 on ABC. So that, your breakout sequel, Scott, is Inside the Third Reich Part 2. 
I'm scared to wonder if the reason more people watch is they were promised more, uh, uh, how do I put this gently, concentration camp content. Well, <laughs> well, at the end of the first one, they hinted to Hitler, and this one, this one happened. Uh, number six, Magnum P.I. on CBS. Uh, number seven, 60 Minutes on CBS, which 60 Minutes was a top 10 placer for a long time. That's a, like for a news show. You, I don't think a news program would hit nowadays at all. I mean, there's cable news stuff, which dominates the cable ratings, but um, 60 Minutes is a very popular program for 80s and 90s. And was it on in the 70s? When did 60 Minutes begin? I'm not a 60 Minutes historian. Do you remember it all, Scott? Uh, I want to say the 1970s, but let me look that up. 1968. 1968. So, yeah, that was a staple. If I may, perhaps to mm-hmm. make up for my inappropriate commentary earlier, <laughs> the the Third Reich thing, which, which is what, 1982, you know, for what it's worth, mm-hmm. it had only been a year since the, the, um, you know, the U.S. courts had officially, without question, declared that the Holocaust was an absolute legal fact. Yeah. And not something that could be contested. You know, this was in October of 81 when they handed down the big decision saying that, you know, it was a a Holocaust survivor that had sued various people trying to argue the Holocaust did not happen. Mm -hmm. And the end result of the case was that, A, you know, uh, what was his name? Mel Mermelstein, who did sue. And as a result of the case, the American court system determined once and for all that, yes, the Holocaust was a fact. So it's quite possible that people watching this Third Reich documentary in 1982, I mean, obviously, it's not like you didn't know what had happened, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, it was taught in schools. But I am curious now to wonder how this played out in a world where we have finally recently decided that, nope, this isn't, you know, this isn't subjective history anymore. Right. They did a TV movie about him with Leonard Nimoy called Never Again. Oh, really? Uh, that's the only reason I remembered that story that I just Googled. Huh. <laughs> Gotcha. Anyway, moving on. Uh, no, yeah, number eight, Heart to Heart on ABC. Uh, that's again in the top ten. Uh, number nine, Jefferson's on CBS. And rounding out the top ten, on also on CBS, Trapper John and D. And I got, I'm thinking, oh, we're in May. This is like sweeps. The finales of everything are coming out uh, in May. We'll get to some weird top tens probably as we hit June, July, and August with whatever is airing in the summer during the no time during that. But yeah, that's that's what TV looked like then. Got a couple of specials in there and uh, some comedies and stuff. And Magnum PI jumping up in there. So I imagine Magnum PI since it wasn't on the previous week. I bet it was off, and now it's hitting its like last three episodes of the of the season. Like bam, 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 to, to hit in there something because I figured that would have been in there last week if it was two. One switch. In a moment, World War Three. But first, a word from our sponsors. Meet TV superstar reporter Patrick Hale. He's on to the most incredible story of his career. Two atom bombs. Get the dirt! The bad news the is dirt! it involves an Arab terrorist. Why trust me? Television, you reach millions. A trigger-happy general. Attack now, Mr. President. Hit him first. Good guys never shoot first. Why not? The President of the United States. He's heard a rumor about the bomb. Well, don't say yes and don't say no. Don't say maybe. Say you'll call back, but don't. That's how you stay president. And it may result in World War III. The good news is his ratings are going through the roof. We're not a show on television. Columbia Pictures presents Wrong is Right. A very funny look at the world. Rated R. 
Starts Friday, Man's Plaza, Westwood. Speaking of like 60 Minutes of News, our next film is wrong, is right. Uh, directed by Richard Brooks, he of In Cold Blood, and also wrote the films Key Largo, Brute Force, The Killers, Crossfire, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Stars Sean Connery, Robert Conrad, Catherine Ross, John Saxon, Leslie Nielsen, Henry Silva, Rosalind Cash, Dean Stockwell, and there's a little small role for Jennifer Jason Lee in the movie. Uh, features a TV. I got it. Recognize her. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Carry on. It's about a TV reporter who finds himself in the middle of an Arab uh, leader buying two portable nukes, terrorists, uh, arms dealers, a reporter, CIA spies killed, a U.S. president ordering, like a lot of pandemonium. This is a a full-on satire that oddly had some timeless qualities about it. (laughs) Life became as strange as fiction. Sean Connery's here in a... While it's a comedic role, he's not like going trying to be wacky. He's not trying to outdo any other kind of comedic performer. He's playing the role. It's as a, it's it a be. roguish anti-hero kind of role, right? Yeah, uh, it's it's strange because the film sort of it's set. I think in the near future. It's, I, mean, it's, I don't yeah. think it's set like right at the exact second. Although the issues are supposed to resonate accordingly, right? But one thing I found interesting: the extent that he has basically a. a El- locked elbows relationship with the highest levels of American governmental power. Mm-hmm. You know, he's basically in the situation room during several major scenes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's a TV news guy. He's sort of the Sean Hannity of his day, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I mean the film, which you know, was intended as satire at the time is basically, it wanted to be sort of the Dr. Strange love of the cold of, of modern yeah, that's accurate. Eastern re- American relations. Back it, when, you know, the Cold War was sort of entering its its third lap. Mm-hmm. It's a very, unfortunately, it's a very prescient movie in that it climaxes with attempted terrorist attacks being staged, basically. Yeah. As a pretext to go to war with the Middle East. And the film comes right out and says it. That, you know, yeah. it's, basically, the implication is that the CIA, acting with or without, and without the knowledge of the president, does all of the bad stuff that we see in the film. Well, and they also try to bomb the Twin Towers as part of that, yes, too. Yes, that is the staged terrorist attack that yeah. doesn't quite happen, that is then used as a pretext to go to war with the Middle East. And it's a deeply angry, cynical, pessimistic film mm-hmm. filled with, frankly, shocking violence. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's gore dreads, but there's quite a bit of, of... Oh, there's a scene with the guy set on fire that's yes. impressively done, and it looks really well. There are but, suicide yeah. bombers out the wazoo. Yep. It's a fascinating picture. Yeah, it's um, really something to dig up and like just take a look at, because it's, no, it's long partially forgotten. Partially because it's, you know, not that this is nostalgia talking, but it's fascinating to watch a movie like this that could be like this and basically have no not only be relatively non-controversial, but have no impact on the pop culture at large. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, you, you, yeah. Dr. Strangelove is definitely the, what they want to be, but it's one of its issues is it's by design, but also a fault of it is it's far too bloated. That's yes. there's a long so many allegiances, alliances and people. There's, there are some nice twists and turns that happen in there. Um, when you realize the government's dealing with its own government on something, but it, yeah, there's, just a lot going on. It could have probably started at a later point in the movie to open, but uh, it, yeah, it's a beast of a. Yeah, of a I mean, thing. You know, the film starts 
on an angle where, you know, violence is at an all time high. People are basically lashing out in various ways, including legal ways. They have this, this, they introduced this concept of like paid simulations mm-hmm. where you can like simulate killing somebody that you, you know, like there's this young girl played yeah. by Jason Lee who mm-hmm. fantasizes about killing her parents. So she goes to a service that lets her act out that fantasy. And that could have been a movie right there. Right. But it's sort of this random introductory idea that nothing ever happens. Yeah. Nothing ever happens, which is fine as contextual seasoning, but it just it means the movie takes a little bit longer to actually get to where it's going. Mm-hmm. But no, it's 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 a curiosity. It's in that it's in that period between, you know, frankly, between Diamonds of Forever and The Untouchables, where even if the movies were good, and often they were, Sean Connery was not a box office draw. He was getting ready to be James Bond again the very next year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shit. I mean, there's a reason he did Highlander too, not just Highlander. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's very good in this, you know, it's an old school star vehicle. You know, mm-hmm. if they were to remake it, they never would. But if they were to remake it, you know, John Hamm would probably play that role. Right. So they have a the president of the United States in this has a black female vice president. And they they are ruthless, like they are, because you know she's basically for show, for yeah. for him, and she plays against herself. Like I love her for, her introduction had a great line where she has the hardest time just getting into being in a meeting. She and she she makes a comment like, "There's a lot of white tape you have to get through down here," and I was like, "Oh!" And then she, her warnings about him putting himself in danger is all about I would be in command, yeah, and to like, scare him to not do things. And it's um, it's that's really good satire right there. Yeah, it's you know she has yeah. a great line when you know the president might basically offer himself up for arrest. Mm-hmm. Was like you know if you do that you know there's going to be a black woman in the White House and she won't be serving dinner. That's something yep. I don't get shot before taking over. Yeah, and she's uh, probably one of my favorite points of the movie. It was really just the funny thing is they're they're actually ribbing each other. They're actually on weirdly friendly terms. It's not right. an antagonistic line. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of shocking that A, this movie exists in the form that it does. B, that so much of it, unfortunately, I don't want to get, you know, truther here or, you know, loose. I don't want to join the loose change brigade, but there mm-hmm. are certainly stuff in this film that plays under certain theories about, you know, the Bush administration pre and post 9 11. Right. Perhaps some loose changer accidentally caught this on some like Perhaps. cable station and was like, you uh-huh. know what? Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it, it started here. Yeah. I mean, it's, and the other thing is, again, that a movie like this could exist as just a movie mm-hmm. without making much of an impact for good or ill, without making much of a ruckus for good or ill. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's a classic example. Of, you know, it's the book isn't great, but I do love the line in Frank, you know, the, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Strikes Back, where Lex Luthor ba- says something basically effective. Freedom of speech is a wonderful thing, especially when no one's listening. Right. No, you can make a film as as politically incisive and angry and anti you know, authority or whatever, if you know no one's going to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I like. I think the cast was really fun as well. Which I mean, to me, it's like, oh, look at all these people in it. But at this time, they weren't all these people in it. Like I, I get excited when I see John Saxon in things. Yeah. Dean Stockwell. Uh, there's a so Leslie Dean. Nielsen pre Police Squad. Yeah. But post-airplane. Post-airplane. Yeah, pre, <laughs> pre-police squad. Was yeah, same like, year as Creepshow? Oh, he was on a run. Yeah, man, I think I think Creepshow comes out this year. Yeah, <laughs> does come out this year. Yeah, and 
just so many people like Henry Silva, not in some schlocky, you know, Italian mobster movie. Well, instead he's playing a Middle Eastern. Uh, right. Lord. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that probably wouldn't fly today because no. the rest of the film would totally fly today. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, th- I think if you're into like political satire stuff that like and you'd be you'd be stunned that this is 40 years old and still yeah. has like the same problems and things going on like yeah and there's other ideas in the movie that that, that's the one thing like i said it's bloated and scott mentioned an interesting idea about killing somebody to not kill your parents and stuff and that shouldn't even be in here because it's like well that's interesting oh it's gone it was just a gag and it has a more there's a more interesting exploration that could go with that um and i i think over the last 40 years the media as we know, it has devolved to such a point where the elements about the media in this film that are probably supposed to be satire mm-hmm. don't register as, as much at all. No, 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 that's true. That's true. Like, yeah, it went to a place that they couldn't have imagined back then that, oh. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Very, anyway, if you're looking, I mean, if you're looking for a Sean, something Sean Connery, I'm pretty sure you probably haven't seen. Wrong is right. It's something to scratch that itch or that period that, that Scott said between uh, Diamonds Are Forever and Untouchables. There's plenty of stuff to find of his that's going for things, not caring about things. It's an interesting time for Sean Connery. You have Zardoz and then you have like Cuba. You have like, you know, Outlander and all sorts of odd choices for him that just do whatever. Fascinating picture. I think it's called The Offense. Let me look at it. Yeah, it's it's a very early Sidney Lumet picture. It's about a cop who basically loses control and kills a child molester in custody. Mm. I think you can rent it at the places where you could rent stuff. Again, it's 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 very low budget, relatively long, small scale, but it's a fascinating time capsule, especially in terms of early early Sidney Lumet. It's a Scott recommendation here from the summer of eighty two. But yeah, this was yeah very unlike. Bad films we've had a while. Like this one, I'm like, yeah, you should check. You, you give this a shot. Give like if you can find it. If it's not too hard to find, you don't have to go out of your way to find it. Like, yeah, Four it's bucks for you rent it. Yeah, you can rent it for a couple bucks, and it probably will show. Up. It's a Warner Brothers movie, so it could wind up on HBO Max at any given moment. To be fair, I should note that from in the in the mid '70s, he was actually there was some you know Bird on the Orient Express, The Man mm-hmm. Who Would Be King, Robin and Marion, The Great Tram Robbery. It really wasn't until the eighties we started to, to, to. But Robin and Mary wasn't like well regarded as it is now. No, um, that's true. That's but true. It, yeah, that one's a slow discovery. Yeah, slow discovery. Um, um, Man who would be king's excellent though too. That, yeah, that's that's a, that's a terrific but, yeah. terrific picture. It's a very good. Picture. Um, he was he was kind of Nicholas Cage in there back in the day, like you know, like yeah. every every so many you get this great one, and then he goes yeah. does schlock in a different era. That's a way. terrific comparison, actually. Yeah. Because, yeah, he, he wins the Oscar for The Untouchables, which was basically his comeback film. Mm-hmm. And then he starts doing star vehicles like the Presidio, supporting role in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, and then The Unfurled October. And then he goes through a period for about a little under 10 years where he is a, you know, a star, you know, an above the title star in stuff mm-hmm. like Medicine Man and Life Entrapment. And that was basically his last one, more or yeah. less, Entrapment. Yeah. Of course, he retires after the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He was about to go back in that that again, and he's like, "No, nope." Now, Finding Forrester is very good. Mm-hmm. That was sort of his last good movie. Oh, the man now, dog. That was <laughs> that was back when they would find some line that sounded like a 
you know, his Scotsman saying it sounded interesting, so they put it in the trailer. Because, like, I think Extraordinary German was like, oh, no, that's not her. <laughs> He's like Gene Hackman, where if he had stopped one movie before and he would have went out on a winner. Right, right. You got that. <laughs> the, the, the Michael Jordan playing on the Wizards. That was... <laughs> That's what they got there. That's what they got. Billboard ranks them AT40 counts them down. Heading over to the what was uh, what were the kids listening to music wise? The Casey Kasem Top 40 Countdown. Uh, the top ten from there. Uh, we got some movers and shakers this week. Uh, we have a new number one. So, Chariots of Fire did not last. Number ten did it in a minute. Daryl Hall and John Oates. Number nine, The Other Woman by Ray Parker Jr. This is pre-Ghostbusters Ray Parker Jr. Uh, number eight, Freeze Frame by the Jay Giles Band. Seven, 65, Love Affair. That's always hard to read when I have a number and then a number. It's like number seven, 65, Love Affair by Paul Davis. Number six, I've Never Been to Me by Charlene. Number five, eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone Hanks Tough in the top ten. Number four, I Love Rock and Roll, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Number three, Don't Talk to Strangers. Rick Springfield is moving up, moving up, and it's not Jesse's girl. Uh, number two, Vangelis has slid down the Chariots of Fire. And the new number one, Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, which was toward the top. I think it was number three in the top ten last week. It's moved down. Those are your Casey Kasem top 40s. But, yeah, looking looking there, those are probably going to, like, stay similar and by the end of this probably be completely different it'll look the same 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 but like the box office it'll probably be a completely different story well it will be a completely different story by the end i would be stunned if any of these remained in the top 10 throughout the way but uh it was nice having you evangelist at top the number one for one week (laughs) and let's go to our marquee picture this week uh and we're talking about Conan, the Barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Conqueror. King. Conan. Let us take the world by the throat and make it give us what we desire. Conan, the Barbarian. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Directed by John Milas, written by uh, him and Oliver Stone, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Earl Jones, Sandal Bergman, and Max von Sydow. As a young boy, Conan becomes a slave after his parents are killed and tribe destroyed by a savage warlord and sorcerer, Tulsa Doom. When he grows up, he becomes a fearless, invincible fighter. Set free, he plots revenge against Salsa Doom. Here we are, Conan the Barbarian. This is a what we would think of as a summer movie. Absolutely. Unlike Paradise. <laughs> this was probably the unofficial kickoff to the summer 1982 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it opened number one at the box office with a $9.6 million. Was this a, a surprise as big of a hit as it was? Well, yes and no. I mean, it was, by the way, adjusted for inflation, that's about 29.2. Because, I mean, it was a hit. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. But $38 million 
is decent without being spectacular. Yeah. Even adjusted for inflation, that's only $119 million. Gotcha. Now, I don't, you know, the, the, because the film only, you know, again, it did $38 million on a $20 million budget. The only reason it was as big as it was is overseas, it did very well. You know, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of the first stars of that era to make a real effort to sell his films outside of North America. Right. You know, he was somewhat ahead of his, his time in terms of pressing the flesh in Japan and Germany and France and whatever. Uh, and this was a genuine, you know, overseas smash hit. It did about uh, $80 million worldwide, so it quadrupled its budget. I don't think it was a surprise hit. Just, you know, maybe yeah. it did a, a little bit better than it was expected, but, yeah. you know, it was, it was, you know, certainly a movie like this on this scale Mm-hmm. With this level of sheen and prestige, was an event film unto itself in 1992. Right. Yeah, and uh, he was. People knew who Arnold Schwarzenegger was yes. before this movie. This wasn't like yes, it certainly was gimmick casting. Yeah, the idea is that 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 giant bodybuilder with the pardon, pardon, the funny accent mm-hmm. playing, you know, a walking, you know, murder machine in Conan the playing Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And it was very much star plus character hook. I think, you know, Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. Right. Or back then it was probably closer to Angelina Jolie as Laura Croft. But that that's where you take, like, what an established star put it in there. This was kind of like, well, we can, we can get him. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, Dolph Lundgren as the Punisher. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Probably yeah. the equivalent of that. I, I said, because I watched a trailer for the movie and it was very, it was still very much exploitation like it was like go down hey go we're gonna chop a head off watch it and i'm like wow for for as like we as much as we remember this picture as being this big blockbuster tentpole thing the trailer sure like come enjoy some trash this weekend at the theater arnold like whatever gets him in the door yeah yeah it worked this is one of the most influential movies to knock off cinema in the 1980s like this it's up there. Kicks down. To, I will not call the Beastmaster, which we'll be covering later in the summer. Is not. A, <laughs> it's it's not a knock. Like you would think it's a knock. But it was being filmed before Conan. Yeah. Uh, and already in the works. So there's just two things happening. Like as does when cinema. I mean, we had two Joan of Arc movies in a year. You know, the Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon year. But. Yeah, but there was a lot like Italian cinema would go nuts off of this movie, off of a movie we're talking about next week, and John Carpenter's Escape from New York from the year before. Those would be there; they would churn out ripoffs of those like crazy, like like crazy with these. And so would Corman here with uh, Conan. He would jump on it as well. The film got mixed. I mean, the very definition of mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. It's a weird situation where some of the very things that were. This is why this film is good and worth seeing. Somebody else would say, "This is why this film is terrible and you know not worth seeing." You know, it's very, it's it's obviously very violent. It has R-rated gore, R-rated violence. It certainly is not going to win any feminism in film awards. And for that matter, whether intentional or not, it does play in a certain uh, Nietzschean super Superman fantasies where you have a guy that looks like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, very you know, very flamboyantly beheading James Earl Jones and throwing his head down a staircase. Yeah, but he is the barbarian. He should act like a barbarian. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, 
on one hand, yeah, it's a little, little Letty Reffenstall-ish, I'm sure. But, you know, as someone that likes James Earl Jones, I want him to play villains like that. Yeah. You know, I think we lose when we have, when we don't have non-white guy actors as villains just because we're scared of certain receptions. Right. But whatever. The film, you know, was what it was. It was relatively popular. It certainly is more mainstream than any other Conan adaptation that we've gotten since then. Right. And frankly, I think it started a weird trend where Hollywood would see a film that was successful partially because Arnold Schwarzenegger was in it and think, hey, this is a franchise. Right. You know, Conan, Predator, The Terminator. Well, they also you know, thought the next time we need to get the kids in the seats, too. So they yeah. they drastically changed, which I think Conan the Destroyer is like a doofy. Yeah, it's, it's fun. the B-movie film you thought the last one might be, and it's I silly. Think it's actually a little better because it's a little it's the pacing's a little bit spiffier. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a more colorful film, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's still violent. People yeah. People still bleed when they get stabbed. Right. You know, that was back when PG, but you know, this was before the PG 13. So Cody and the story bringing PG did not mean that they fight each other with flowers and they have sweat instead of blood. Right. Right. I, I do think that again, it's a, it's a situation where one company or another has been threatening to do King Conan for 30 years. They tried to reboot it with, with a then relatively unknown Jason Moena in 2011. Mm-hmm. A film that I think is fine in its right. own way. Uh, I think in some ways it's as good as this one, if not better. Again, it's 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 quicker on its feet. There's more action. It's a larger scale. It's a $90 million picture. Mm-hmm. It also was financial suicide. Yeah. You know, it's, Again, it's a, it's a situation where it's a property that just because people have heard of it doesn't mean they actually want a movie of it. Well, it's a 1930s property too. Yeah. Like it comes from there. Like it co- and then it had some comic books in the 70s. It had some magazine stories over the year. Like it's an old old character. Even in this, like when they're doing it now, it's like 50 some years old. I know. I think Netflix is doing another TV show of Conan. Whatever. It's Netflix. They're not accountable to anybody. But still, I mean, you know, all this, you know. We should make a new Conan movie. It's like at the height of its popularity, where a movie like this was an event, when movies of this nature were rare, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was this incredibly interesting new star, the film still made adjusted for inflation $119 million. Right. Now you tell me you're going to spend $80 million on a movie that made 100, 119 domestic 40 mm-hmm. years ago? Yeah. And this is the thing. Well, would they learn and what? They figure it out in the 80s and what leads through the 90s that it wasn't the property that was the franchise. It was the action star that was the franchise, like Arnold, Sylvester Stallone, Van Damme, uh, Seagal. Like that was uh, Lundgren to a degree. Like they'd find Jackie Chan. He was a franchise himself. Like all these people that it was the guy. Stars were the franchise. Yeah. And even when you had an IP in the mix, something like The Fugitive wasn't an IP necessarily. I mean, it was, but, and yes, people had heard of the show, but it was also just a very primal look. Mm-hmm. Respected doctor played by Harrison Ford, America's good guy, wrongfully convicted of killing his wife, mm-hmm. breaks out of jail by mistake, and has to fi- track down the murderer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. That's terrific, even if you don't give a damn about yeah. the TV show. Film version of your TV show. That's yeah. that's that's what, that was what an IP would, would happen. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, you'd have like uh, what the Flintstones would get that. Uh, the Brady Bunch would get some parody movies. Yeah, like it would be that. And now we've reversed where would that always happen though? Like movies would become TV shows. Like I mean, Breaking Away had a series. League of Their Own failed at a series. Like 
Um, Did they ever make a Buffy TV show? I heard they were, that was in development at some point. I heard something about the guy who made it. Um, Yeah. It was. I liked his Justice League movie, but I don't know that much else about him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, Oh, and we're talking about this in May when this is all happening in January (laughs) this year. And obviously, MASH. Yeah. But jokes about Josh Whedon aside, Buffy is probably one of the more prominent examples of a movie that just didn't really make an impact, spawning a TV show that absolutely took on a life of its own. Right. True, Um, true, true. Even Parenthood was a hit movie. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, MASH was a best, you know, an Oscar winning picture. Mm hmm. So yeah, Buffy is Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a little is a little odd. Other than maybe Police Squad, yeah. where you took a show that nobody watched and made it to a movie that people actually showed up for. Right, 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 right. Um, um, maybe Conan will do something. I don't. I I watching this like this movie still has like really great set pieces and special effects that still feel like movie magic. Like yeah, I'm like oh, how did that happen? And like just gigantic that tower at the end. There's ca- there's Indiana Jones type stuff in this where he's searching through caverns that that work. It's like a tangible world without feeling like super fantasy, but it works still. Like I, I think like visually and and effects wise, like I think I, you know how genders are played in movies nowadays not going to hold up for people too much. But I I think as a tentpole type looking film it still holds strong and i'm gonna get maybe get shit for this but i thought watching it this i'm like sandal bergman's valeria is way cooler than conan sorry <laughs> i'd like she looks cooler in a fight she's yeah pretty small she's pretty i mean she I, she's pretty tough will she gets to be this cool like like godlike thing towards the end I was like, yeah, she's pretty. She got like a movie called She or something a couple years later that was basically like, okay, people liked you in this. Let's put you here. And that, of course, after Ugo, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, there's a knockoff, a series called Deathstalker from Corman. When the same thing happened with Lana Clarkson, she was much cooler than Deathstalker. And then they ended up making Barbarian Queen series of movies with her as the star. The the woman who was murdered by Phil Spector, Lana Clarkson, but um, she was the Sandal Bergman character basically in Deathstalker, and she got her own spinoff as well. And then, of course, you know, after Conan the Barbarian, you had Red Sonia, yeah, which you know, something that you know is almost seems unreal now. But you know, you had Arnold Schwarzenegger in a supporting role in a female centric sword and sorcery. You no, know, he's supposed to be Conan, and then they yeah ripped it from him. But yeah. why? Do you know why? I have no idea. I think I don't. Fair maybe uh, the studios were different, and they couldn't really do that. But he was supposed to be Conan. I mean, he is Conan. <laughs> yeah, he's totally one hundred percent Conan in that yeah. movie. But and I'm not going to say that movie's good, but it's interesting. Yeah, that's another property they think they can keep bringing back. Like nobody yeah. was there in the beginning in the first yeah, exactly. place. Like under the, you know, nobody showed up under the best of circumstances. Yeah, you know, the same thing with you know they want to reboot you know you know the Green Hornet or the Saint. You know, these films that didn't do, whether you like them or not, they did not do well during times when people actually showed up. Yeah. Like there's IPs that just, I, when I when I lived in Los Angeles, I was uh, working with somebody on a screenplay once and, you know, it was really cool that Nintendo game Deja Vu, like a, a noir type thing and just shits and giggles, found the company that made it, sent an email off, like thinking about writing a script and they wanted to really talk about doing it because you know what? Sure. Like. 
money. Some some IPs will just go for it because oh look, it's exposure and maybe some make a buck off of it. If yeah, so not everything can be brought like that. But so yeah, I mean Conan the Barbarian, it uh, opened with a nine and a half million, legged out to thirty nine and change. Um, was was this until Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring? You think this was the biggest? most cherished respected fantasy film there was no, because Excalibur was the previous year. There's a Excalibur. Okay. So I would say Excalibur myself, but that's a bit weird and more, I would think more divisive of a movie. I'm, th- I'm thinking like general public. Ah, uh, yeah, I would say so. Okay. Give or take. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, Excalibur made about 35 million the previous mm-hmm. year domestic. I don't know if there's, because I, I think Excalibur is awesome, but it's also oh, yeah. way longer of a movie, and it's I can't see people oh. not caring for it. Yeah, but. I would say so, just because you get people that wouldn't otherwise be interested in the sword and sorcery genre mm. that just want to. Hey, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a giant barbarian, yeah, killing people with swords, right? But that's a long just gap add, you know, for quality. Just as the, the the appeal of Predator once upon a time was mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Carl Weathers, and Jesse Ventura, and a bunch of other tough guys getting their asses kicked by an alien in the jungle. Tough guy Shane Black. Yeah, and it's it's you know again it's, it's, the 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 character of Predator is not the was never the the appeal. Right, it was never the draw. True, and you know there's a reason why you know in franchises like that or RoboCop that you know the first one was really the only one that was a hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only exception to that was when you got James Cameron involved in your sequel. Yeah. Then you got first Rambo, First Blood Part Two, Aliens, and Terminator 2. True. True, um, true, true. Yeah, sometimes I, as we grow older and we realize that we lost, Scott, we talk about this all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in, like, maybe just comic book and novel spinoffs was the way to go. Maybe. Maybe. Because you don't have... No one's going to read. Some people read them all, and there you go. And they have no budget. They have no budget. But yeah, so that Conan the Barbarian. Also want to note, good score. Has a really cool score to it. Yeah. score. Uh, that's you heard it in a lot of trailers in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, James Earl Jones, terrific baddie. Not much Max on Saito, but he's there to give it a little heft later on in the film. <laughs> Let's take that off. Now we got our number one film of that weekend. What was happening at the box office this weekend, Scott? Conan the Barbarian was number one, uh, earning $9.6 million in 1,395 theaters. Porky's was number two in its ninth weekend of release, dropping just 15 or 16% for a $2.8 million weekend and a $76 million total. Sword and the Sorcerer. Porky's another- outdid Conan the Barbarian. Oh, yeah. Porky's outdid a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this movie was humongous. It's so crazy. As did, you know, it's, it, it's you know, in, in 84, Police Academy. Right. Which outgrossed a lot of films that people talk about a lot more than Police Academy these days. True. Uh, for better or worse. And I'm not the first person to say this, but I think if Police Academy hadn't spawned a gazillion sequels of, well, lousy sequels, let's be honest. Right. Um, I think it might be talked about alongside Porky's and Animal House and Stripes Daddy Shack, not because it's particularly good, because it's not, but it is very much in that snobs versus snob, snobs versus slobs genre. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was a great article series years ago. Was it the Forgotten Number Ones? 
someone uh, wrote? Forgot Busters. Forgot Busters. Yeah, that was yes. it's a pretty good series. I'm planning on doing one of those uh, next month, I think, for Wild Ox. Oh, gosh. Which yeah. turns 15 this next month. And if ever there's a film that represents the kind of film that once used to be a hit without breaking a sweat that now wouldn't even exist. Right. It's freaking wild hogs. There you Terrible go. Terrible film, but it had a bunch of stars. It had an easy hook. It was just family friendly enough. And that was enough to get a $45 million opening weekend in early 2006. Excuse me, early 2007. Number three. Or the was, Sorcerer yeah. was number three with 2.2 million. Paradise, remember Paradise, last week's winner was 1.4 million in fourth place, 48% drop, which this was back in 1982. Sean Connery's Wrong is Right made 1.4 million in fifth place. It would eventually end up earning approximately $3.6 million. Wow, so just a little more than double that. Yeah, and then Chariots of Fire, Victor, 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 Victor Victoria, if you could see what I hear, uh, on Golden Pond, did a, and now at 103.5, Death Trap, Richard Pryor, Live in the Sunset Strip, and Quest for Fire. Nice. I haven't seen numbers this low since I was doing box office in late 2020, early 2021. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, we're getting up there with the code in, and yeah, um, it's it's better now. Yeah, it's better, better now. But yeah, let's see the box office report there. Seems like it's, it's Chairs of Fire and Victor Victoria, those are like, still hangovers from like an oscar weekend still playing pretty much those pretty pretty interesting cool 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 well that'll do it for uh this this second weekend of may scott as always thank you for joining me and before we sign out absolute pleasure let uh people know where they can keep up with you forbes.com please google some variation of scott mendelson forbes and the ticket booth and i'm at twitter at at scottmendelson.com all right uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Scott and I will return next week where Tom Skerritt gets his death wish, Humphrey Bogart posthumously stars in a movie with Steve Martin, and Mel Gibson takes a bit of a joyride. That and more as we continue on the third weekend of the summer of 1982. Until then, stay film positive. The summer of 82 Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.